So we continue our journey through the book of Acts, Acts 14. If you haven't turned there already, feel free uh, to do that. So we're in the middle of uh, Paul and Barnab- Barnabas's first missionary journey, as it's referenced, as it's known as. So chapter 13 is where it started. Chapter 14 is where it ends. We're going to cover all of chapter 14, Lord willing, in our time together. And hopefully that time is not too long, um, <laughs> as sometimes it happens to be. But I think we can do it quickly, all of chapter 14 together. So I've handed out some. I did last week and then again uh, today for those some of you who weren't here last week, some maps of that area that we're talking about. And so you can have an idea of where exactly we're at. So it's the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and Turkey is really the area mostly where this happens in, oh, thanks, Nathaniel, in chapter 14. So they started out in Antioch in Syria. So that would be close to Israel. So on the east side of the Mediterranean. And they started their journey in Crete, uh, sorry, Cyprus. I don't know why I said that. In Cyprus, the island um, went from east to west. Then they sailed up to Italia and did their journey up to Pisidian Antioch, as it were. And then now they're in Iconium. So that's where we begin in chapter 14, uh, where they're at. As we start talking about this, I was um, thinking about just the... In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. A lot of us have heard about John chapter 3. You know, that's where John three sixteen's is at. Um, and so if you've been in church in any amount of time, you've probably heard a sermon or two on John chapter 3. And after the encounter with Nicodemus, or at the end of the encounter with Nicodemus... Jesus talks about light and darkness, and he talks about how when light is shown on something, either people are going to hide and recoil, or they're going to bask in it, they're going to enjoy it, they're going to say, wow, okay, this is new truth, good things, light is good, I want to live in the light, and some people are going to say, no, I don't want to. I was thinking about that this week a little bit, in um, just how different things cause us to react differently depending on the circumstances, depending on just exactly what people are doing, how they're doing it. Um, There's this birdhouse in the front of our yard that I built with some scrap wood a few years ago. Uh, There's now living in it, sort of living in it, this sparrow bird-ish thing. Now, I, as a kid, I used to learn how to tell the difference between different bird noises. Um, So I could do that. My grandpa had a bird book and um, we would just, I spent a lot of time over that set of grandparents' house and I loved birds, loved learning about birds, loved learning the songs of birds and their noises. This bird though, that currently sits atop of our birdhouse all day long, all it does is chirp. It just won't stop chirping. And... It's kind of annoying because I don't know what it's doing. I don't know what the purpose of it is to chirp. And so whenever I hear some birds, I think, oh, wow, that's pretty. And you hear them like in the trees, in the woods, and you're like, oh, this is nice. It's pleasant. But then there are some, like this sparrow thing, that is just annoying. Like, I don't, I don't get I don't know if it's calling for its young that have been hatched and flew away, and it's like, come back, come back, because I don't see the little young things anymore. I think it had a couple of, couple of kids um, a month or two ago. But it's just, it just keeps coming back to the top of the birdhouse, right in front of the house, 
and you can hear it all day long. And then whenever a mockingbird comes and drives it away, it just goes to the tree on the other side of our house and just keeps chirping until it can drive the mockingbird away or the mockingbird goes away and then it gets back on the... Anyways, it's a scenario where sometimes, for some people, you enjoy what's happening. You enjoy the noise that nature makes, the beauty that nature possesses. And for others, or maybe in other times, it's just annoying as all get out. You wonder, what is going on here? Is this, is this animal possessed? <laughs> there are different ways that we respond to truth. <coughs> different ways that different people respond to the same truth. We'll see that again in Acts chapter 14. And I think one of the things that we can see here as we look at Acts chapter 14 is kind of what it takes to truly accept this truth. If we are going to understand the message that Paul brings to people who've never heard the gospel before, if we're going to be a people who believe and trust in the gospel, who live according to the gospel, who have the gospel be our lives, not just a truth that is out there that we believe, but really an all-encompassing purpose for our life, what drives every decision we make, every action that we take, every word we say, what does it take to be a disciple? And so we're going to see how different people respond to the same gospel message, and we're going to see a response and a life that it takes to be a disciple. So Acts chapter 14, I'm going to read all of it, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Acts 14, starting in verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. He did not leave himself without witness, 
For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, now he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So what's it take to be a disciple? The first thing I would say in just saying that is that I think we need to be sure to understand that being a disciple means you're being a discipler. You are being discipled. But you also are then discipling others. This is the example that Paul and Barnabas begin to set for us. So in verse 1, we see that they preach. So we're going to do some alliteration because, you know, sometimes I like to mix up how it is that I roll. We're going to do alliteration. It's not going to be three points, though. It's going to be eight. So um, hopefully we can get through these quick. Uh, the first one, they're all P's. Proclamation or preaching. Um, so there's even like two and one, right? Um, proclamation, preaching. We see it in verse one of chapter four. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. We see it again in verses six and seven. Um, it says, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. We see it again in the actual message that's recorded for us, or at least, you know, the summary of it in verses 15 through 17. And then again in verse 21, it says the same thing. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So preaching, proclamation of the word is an important aspect of what it means for us to be disciples and to be able to make disciples. How can we make disciples if we're not preaching the word? I mean, we're making disciples, but I don't know of what if it doesn't include the word of God, if it's not preaching the truth of the gospel to the people we're talking to. And we're preaching in such a way that uh, these, these are just extra P's. They're not even part of my eight. I, I, don't, I don't know why this happened, but it happens sometimes. But with passion and persuasion, it seems. Right? Verse one again they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, we're going to see over and over again, hopefully you'll see as we continue through this passage, that what I'm not saying is that it was all Paul and Barnabas and what they did that caused these people to believe. All right, The Lord is in the midst of this. But at the same time, they spoke in such a way. That's what Luke says. And I don't think he says that just 
offhanded. I don't think he records that without doing it for a purpose. And I think part of what we ought to be able to see in that particularly, and it says, I mean, something kind of similar elsewhere also, is that they know what they're going to say. Like, they have practiced this. They have planned this out. They have prepared themselves. (coughs) Again, I've got a problem with peas today. So, with passion and persuasion. I mean, they are speaking in such a way that it encourages and allows the people to be able to understand what it is they're presenting to them. So, if that's the case, then how ought we to prepare ourselves if we have been called, each one of us, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. If we're supposed to do that, if the verb there, if the command there, the expectation there is to make disciples. So to be a disciple, if I am a disciple, then I am a discipler. I am making disciples. And if I'm doing that, then I'm proclaiming the word of God. And if I'm proclaiming the word of God, I'm doing it in such a way that it allows people the opportunity to understand what it is that I'm saying. So proclamation and preaching. John 17, verses 13 through 20. I'm going to come to John 17 and John 15 a couple times. You don't have to flip there, but if you want to, if you're taking any kind of notes or mental notes, John 17 and John 15, really John 14 through 17 are just, I, I think, some of the the most awesomest stuff. Um, You know, there's a lot of red letters in there if you're a red letter kind of person. Um, John 17, verses 13 through 20. This is Jesus and his high priestly prayer. It says, but now I am coming to you, talking to the Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. (coughs) I have given them your word. All right, so Jesus is talking about the disciples. I have given them, the disciples, your word. So he's given them God's word the word of the Father, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Well, what is truth? Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. People aren't usually just going to believe by themselves. God is only going to show up in a vision and revelation so many times. And usually if he does, the stories that we hear when he does that in the world today, he does that in such a way to then bring someone to those people who have a vision or a dream, and they declare to them the word of truth outrightly. That's how this happens. People don't become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ unless they have the word of the Lord Jesus Christ presented to them. And so proclamation and preaching ought to be priorities. They ought to be paramount in our minds of what we're studying, what we're learning, what we're ready to talk about with people. The second thing that we ought to be prepared for that ought to characterize us as disciples, as disciplers, 
is persecution. <laughs> right? So we're just going to go straight from the highs and the seemingly easy things to the lows. Right? What is going to happen sometimes when we proclaim the word of God is we are going to be persecuted. This is exactly what brought Paul and Barnabas to Iconium in the first place. In chapter 13, verse 50, the reason why they've continued their journey and had to leave where they were. Chapter 13, verse 50 says, But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Right, So the reason they're here in this town is because they were persecuted in the town before. So they make the 100-mile journey over to this new town, Iconium. Right, It's on your little map there. If you still have it from last week or have it from when I just gave it to you. In verse 2, persecution comes up again. They speak in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And then verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Okay, so that's not just them saying, don't believe what they're saying. It is these unbelieving Jews saying to everyone else, hey, these guys are bad. Not just that they're wrong, but they're bad. So it's instead of saying, hey, I'm not a Republican, and you shouldn't listen to them. It's these guys are awful people. It's, hey, I'm not a Democrat, and you should hate the Democrats. Like, it's going that far instead of just saying, I disagree, right? It's saying, I disagree, and you should hate them. Like, I don't like what they're saying, and I don't like them, right? It's going to a point where it's beyond just disagreement. It's hatred, poisoning their minds against the brothers. And yet, even still in the midst of that, they remained a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. In verse 4, we continue with persecution, but the people of that city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned it. They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe. Right? So, I mean, that's some major persecution where, again, they are forced to leave. One of the things that ought to be said here is, I mean, you don't just take persecution. You don't have to just take it, okay? Sometimes if there's an opportunity, there's wisdom in, hey, these people just aren't listening to what it is we're having to say. Instead of just sitting here and taking the brutality that they have planned against us, maybe we should just kind of move on, and the Lord maybe has some open doors for us somewhere else. So when it comes to persecution and being a disciple— being one who is making disciples and persecution comes upon you, it's not just a sit there and take it. So don't hear me saying that because that's not the witness that we have here from Paul and Barnabas. Now they do sit there and take it sometimes when they don't have any other option. But it's not always the case. But you do see it consistently come up in Acts. Persecution. Again, And again, and again, we find it. So we read verses 4 and 6. Again, it comes in in verse 19. It says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. This is not just persecution like, you know, Betty over there is talking bad about me. This is persecution like Betty just ran over me with her car. Like, you know, I mean, that's how bad this is getting. 
John 15, Jesus has some things to say about this. John 15, verse 18 says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Continuing down in chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. In John, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Paul tells the disciples in Acts chapter 14. In verse 22, he encourages them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about persecution. If we are never persecuted, we ought to ask ourselves the question, why? Why am I not ever persecuted? Why does every single person like me? And for some of us, it might be because we are placating to them. We are catering to what they want to hear instead of what God has said. Maybe that's why. Maybe because we're not actually making disciples or attempting to. Maybe because we're just content to be a disciple who gets poured into from some guy every Sunday and never actually do anything with it. But he says, Paul, in this passage, as he's encouraging the believers, he says that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And this is not an isolated statement from Paul or from the apostles or from Jesus. If they hated me, Jesus says, they're going to hate you too. But they're not going to hate you if you never speak my word. They're not going to hate you if you never contradict the lies of this world. They're never going to hate you if you don't stand up for my truth. Now, you don't have to be a jerk about it. I mean, you don't have to try to bring persecution upon yourself. But if you're not being persecuted, if you haven't been persecuted, why? So we proclaim the gospel, we face persecution. What's another characteristic of a discipler? There's there's a power that's not just our own. 
Okay, so the power that we see in this passage, in this chapter, is the power of the word and the power of the spirit confirming the word. Verse 1, again, now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Verse 3, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So how is it that we can know that this information that you're bringing to us is in fact true? The Lord says, here, let me show that it is true. Let me show these people who would otherwise have no particular reason to trust what it is that you're saying to prove it. And to prove it by performing miracles right in front of your eyes. That was the purpose of these sign gifts was to confirm the truth of the word that was being proclaimed. In verses 8 through 10, we see Paul himself gifted with the ability to heal this man to prove what it is that he's saying. Now at Lystra, verse 8, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, if you're familiar with Acts, Acts chapter 3, this is eerily similar to what happens whenever Peter and John confront this man outside the temple who would every day be laid at the temple gates and would ask for alms. And Peter and John are like, hey, man, we don't have silver and gold. We don't have money we can throw in your little coin pot that's going to clang around and make us feel better about ourselves. And let you go run down to the vape shop and, you know, buy some CBD stuff. Like, we don't have any of that, okay? What we do have, though, is the power to heal you and to allow you to be able to, to live a life where you can provide for yourself and where you can proclaim the excellencies of those of that man, Jesus Christ, who has healed you and given you new life, a new lease on life. That's the sort of power that is being displayed, the power of the Spirit at work in the life of Paul. And... Back in John 15, again, I told you we'd kind of, there were a couple of verses I skipped at the end of John 15, verses 26 and 27. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, all right, this is the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear, will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So how are they doing these things? Through the Spirit of God. That's why Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, all right, these are the Galatians. In Acts 13 and 14, <coughs> these are the Galatians. He is writing the letter to the Galatians to these people that we have just read about, that we're talking about right now. This is the letter that he writes. And in Galatians chapter 5, you have the fruit of the Spirit. What it, is it that the Spirit is supposed to do and produce in us and do in us that confirms and affirms that God is indeed with us, that Christ is indeed changing us from one degree of glory to another, that he is proving himself to be true. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
gentleness, self-control. Paul says those things. Desire those things. Want those things. Want the Spirit to be working in your life. In other places, he talks about the gifts of the Spirit. Like the Spirit gifts people so that they can be a blessing and encourage and build up other believers. So that some of them can perform these sign miracles that affirm the word of the Lord in places that haven't had it before. There's power that we have through the Spirit of God. That's a characteristic of a disciple, one who makes disciples. Passing the glory. I kind of you know, made this one work with a P, but it's our fourth one. Passing the glory. Instead of receiving the glory for ourselves, a characteristic of a discipler is one who doesn't say, look at me and look at what I'm doing and look at how awesome I am or how eloquent I am or how much power I have through the Spirit to perform all these miracles or look at me, woe is me, and all the suffering that I've been through. It says, all of this is through and for and to Christ. Verses 11 through 15, we find this. So Paul has just healed this man. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, right? So a language that Paul and Barnabas didn't know, which is why they react the way that they do, which is a delayed reaction, right? So they say in a different language, in their own language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes. Or if you want to, you know, get even more Roman, that would be Jupiter and Mercury, right? Because, and they called Paul Hermes because he was a chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, right? So when they heard of it, like, the whole procession had kind of started. The whole scene was already <clears throat> unfolding before their eyes and it took them a while to recognize what was happening because they didn't know what these people were saying. They didn't know what they were preparing. And what is Paul's response? He says, men, verse 15, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things and these vain people and the vain worship of dead gods to worship a living God, the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They passed the glory that these people were trying to put on them, and they said, no, this is like, you're not supposed to praise us You're supposed to praise the Lord. And this is a contrast. So we have a similarity with Paul healing the crippled man and Peter. And then we have a contrast here in the story with Herod in chapter 12 that we looked at a few weeks ago. When in chapter 12, the crowd hears Herod speak. The people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. 
and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That sounds awful. But what did Herod not do? He didn't stop and say, whoa, 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 let me tear my garments and show that I am serious and that what you're saying is blasphemy, right? That's what that meant, tearing your garments. I mean, it's not always what it meant, but typically. It's what's happening here is not okay, right? So whether you're in mourning because things are not okay, they're not how they should be, or whether someone is saying something that is illegitimate, they tear their garments and say, this is how serious we are, like, Stop doing what you're doing. The glory belongs to the Lord. Disciples who make disciples, they pass the glory on to the Lord because the Lord's really the one who's doing the work. Our fifth P, there's persistence. They don't give up. I mean, if we haven't, if you didn't get that from reading the story when I read it in its full earlier in chapter 14, or if you put chapters 13 and 14 together, where they've just been run out of another town, and then they go to Iconium, and then they're run out of that town, and then they're run out of that next town, and they just keep keeping on. They're persistent. The persistence that Paul and Barnabas show in the whole chapter, and the persistence they encourage in the disciples, it's both those things. They themselves are showing it, and they themselves are encouraging it. Verses 21 through 23, when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. They are encouraging <laughs> persistence. They have modeled persistence. They are encouraging persistence. Our next P would be a plurality of leadership. What does it mean when we are disciples who make disciples? What's a characteristic? We should know that leadership is not a solo thing. That there ought to be multiple people that we look to to strengthen our faith to teach us, to lead us, to guide us. A plurality, a plurality of leadership is what Paul instills into these churches that Paul and Barnabas instill. Verse 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. There's a plurality of leadership. I'm not just a disciple on my own. I'm not a disciple who's above all the other disciples. I'm a disciple who can learn from others. It keeps even the leaders grounded. It keeps them from soaking up all that glory. It keeps them from getting weighed down by the weight of leadership so that they can persist. They have others to lift them up. They have others to bring them down when they get proud, and they have others to lift them up whenever they're weak and troubled. It's why we exist together as people of God. That's why we're not just staying in our homes on a weekly basis, on a day-in and day-out basis, letting each other figure things out on our own. We're encouraging one another. We're lifting each other up. There's a plurality of membership. There's a plurality of just us, a constant meeting together. Our seventh P is prayer. 
is in verse 23 again. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. There's prayer. What, what's a characteristic of a disciple who makes disciples? You're praying. In all this, you're recognizing that this is the Lord doing this work. And if I'm truly recognizing that it's the Lord doing the work, then I'm asking the Lord to do the work that only he can do. I can't open up eyes to see. I can't open up ears to hear. I can do my part as much as I can to try and convince somebody. But at the end of the day, it's the Lord who gives the growth. God who gives the growth. I can plant. I can water. I can throw out the seeds and the proclamation of the gospel, but God is the one who gives the growth. And so I am in prayer to him because he's the one who's going to actually do the work that I really want to see done. That's really going to honor him. And so I pray. I pray not just for the fruit to be born in new disciples, but I pray that the Lord would be able to continue encouraging the leaders that are around me, the people who are around me, the other Christians around me. Then our last one is partnership. There's a partnership. This is the whole return journey back. I mean, Paul's showing that he cares about these churches. He's not just preaching and saying, good luck, figure it out on your own. He could have, if you have your map and you're looking at it, Paul is from Tarsus, right? And so that's about 150 miles away from where they end in the last city they go to, Derby and Lystra, okay? But they could have just kept going and kind of made a big full circle, but they don't. They backtrack and they go back to these cities that they were basically kicked out of. Maybe some new management came into town. I don't know. But for whatever reason, they, it doesn't say that they were given as much grief on their return visits back through and that they were able to spend some time enough to encourage them to appoint elders. They went back through because they cared for the work that they had done. They were partners with these people. We'll see it in chapter 16, but Timothy is from Lystra, like Paul's right-hand man. There are two letters that Paul writes to Timothy, and he comes from Lystra, one of these places where he goes back and encourages and strengthens the disciples, where he appoints elders. There's a partnership that happens, verses 24 through 28. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, this is why I hand out those maps, because otherwise you'd be like, I have no idea. It's just a bunch of peas, right? It's all peas today. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So this isn't just a partnership with the churches that they just planted. This is a partnership with the church that sent them. They weren't doing this work on their own. The prayers... The faith of the church at Antioch in Syria was behind them the entire way. And they came back to give a report about what happened. You prayed for us. You sent us out. The Holy Spirit called us out from your midst to do the work that he had called us to do. 
we're returning to tell you what he has just done. So you can celebrate with us. You can be encouraged. We can continue this partnership. Verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. There's a partnership. Philippians 2 is, um, it's another really good chapter in scripture. Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13 though, I think help us to see that this partnership is really not just with other humans, other disciples, other Christians, but it's a partnership with the Lord. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who's supposed to work? God? Yes. Who's supposed to work? Me? Yes. Well, how can those two things coexist together? Because we're, we're both supposed to be doing this thing. We're, we're in partnership with the Lord. He's not left us to our own devices saying, good luck, figure it out. But he's also not said, hey, just sit there and wait for things to happen. He's saying, let's do this thing together. That you ought to be busy, a people who are intending and working to make disciples. And as you're doing that, I'm going to bless that work. In the Great Commission, Jesus doesn't command the disciples to say, go and make disciples and leave it at that. He ends the Great Commission by saying, I am with you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is not Jesus saying, I have a work for you to do. Go do it. Maybe I'll check back in a thousand years. No, he's saying, I am with you. I am sending my spirit to be with you. The helper is going to be with you. I am going to be with you. The Lord is going to do amazing and marvelous things through you as you obey. So how, how, do, we, how do we get there? How, how do we become a people who are described in this way if we're not already? I would say a few things. Remember that all of what I've just said, you can take as I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this. But what I want you to hear more so, and that's why I'm ending with this, is that Christ has been there already and he is with us. How do we get there? We don't get there on our own. We don't get there by working harder ourselves, depending on ourselves. We remember that Christ has gone through all this himself. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who has shown a light into our hearts, causing us to believe, showing us his love and beauty. We have life because of Christ. Our life is with Christ. He is with us, and he has given us an example. And the strength that we have is not our own. It's not what we muster up. 
It's the strength that he gives to us. So don't fall into the trap of seeking to prove yourself or earn your discipleship. You are a disciple because of what Christ has done, and you continue to grow in your discipleship because of what Christ is doing in you. We can do none of this apart from him. Second thing, as we depend on him, as Paul said in Philippians 2, we work hard. As we depend on Christ, we work hard. What we're doing here is not just a sit and wait. We are actively engaged and involved in seeing the Lord do something. And if the Lord doesn't want us to do it, we just have to expect and pray that the Lord would shut doors that he doesn't want us to walk through. For his glory, we study hard. We learn to speak in such a way that people are encouraged to believe. In his power, we obey his commands. And the third thing is we recognize and submit to the help of others. We recognize and submit to the help of others. How, do, how can we get there? How can we be disciples who make disciples? How can we grow in our faith? We recognize and submit to the help of others. This comes in some of what I've said already in a, where you've got leaders who you are able to look up to or you're able to learn from. You've got other Christians beside you who are able to pick you up when you're down, who are able to bring you back down to earth whenever you get too haughty. Those are just some of the things that I would encourage us in. I think this is who the Lord has called us to be. Disciples who make disciples. And he's given us examples to be able to be encouraged from. I mean, Paul, this is the last thing I'll say. Paul was literally stoned to death. They thought he was dead. Whether or not he was actually dead, I don't know. But they thought he was dead, and that seems like it's pretty severe. Like, I don't know if anyone's ever thrown rocks at you. But they threw rocks at him to the point where he couldn't move anymore. Right? I mean, humans don't keep moving when they die. I mean, chickens might after you cut off their head, or a snake might when you cut off its head. I saw that last week over the Craven's house, actually. By a chicken, actually. <laughs> but humans don't move when they're dead. They just stop. That's what they thought Paul was. That's the extent to which he gave his body up so that these people might hear the truth. And we don't live in an environment where that's going to happen to us, where we're going to get lynched for proclaiming the truth. But I think when we read passages like this, maybe sometimes we should stop and think and really contemplate, like, what would that have been like? I mean, how humiliating... 
how amazing that it is that he goes from being thought he was dead to the next day traveling miles away to another town. Apparently he wasn't dead. I mean, that's that's just amazing. And I pray that the Lord gives us the faith to be able to persevere, to to trust him and to that length. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Help us to be a people who do trust you, who are able to sit under your word to learn from these witnesses in history past, to be encouraged by it, to know that we're not alone, no matter how difficult our lives may be, that that we haven't faced anything beyond what what Christ himself has gone through, been tempted by, endured, and suffered through. Help us to know that our reward is not found in this life, but our reward is you. Help us to truly believe that. And the great part about that is, Lord, help us, help us to see to be able to know that, I mean, you are with us. And so, I mean, we, we do have you with us. We do have you as a reward with us now. <coughs> Give us a good perspective, a godly perspective. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.